0: We talk a lot about the importance of Bible study at our church, but do we mean it? Are we really committed to studying the Bible? Are you really committed to studying the Bible? It's the Word of God. It's living and active. It's powerful and life-shaping. If we don't know the Bible, how can we apply it to our lives? If we don't read and study the Word of God, Are we truly dedicated to following the Jesus way? I challenge you to establish a regular habit of reading the Bible. Now's the time to start. Are you serious? Thank you, Kurt, for that challenge. It introduces our conversation for the fall here at First Baptist Arlington, you know that our theme for 2022 is re, dot, dot, dot. And we are exploring more deeply the theological and biblical vocabularies that include words that begin with the prefix re-. So every season of the year here at First Baptist, we have focused on a different re word. So in the winter, reflect was our theme. Easter season, redeem. In the spring, reconcile. In the summer, recreate. We've just concluded August. Rejoice. In the fall, our theme will be rededicate. Missions Month in November. Reclaim. And then the Advent season. Remember. But our theme for the fall is rededicate. And what we're going to do together as a church family is we are going to explore the truths and insights that we can find in the book in our Bible known as First Corinthians. And I'm looking forward to sharing this material with you. You know that during the spring when we studied reconciliation, we studied 2 Corinthians. And so we've got them a little out of order. We did 2 Corinthians first, but we did that by design. As now we're looking forward to this conversation we're going to have for the next two months. You remember that the Apostle Paul actually made his way to Corinth on one of his missionary journeys, the story is found in Acts 18 where Paul there met Priscilla and Aquila. And he worked as a tent maker with them as they ministered the gospel in Corinth. Paul, uh, Timothy and Silas eventually showed up and Paul then left his tent making work and gave his full attention to establishing the church in Corinth. Paul will eventually, years later, he'll write four letters to the church in Corinth. Corinth. If you look at Paul's writings, this will be the single most uh, amount of of material that he wrote to just one church. Two of the letters have been lost in antiquity, but we have two of the remaining letters, and they're in our Bibles 1 and 2 Corinthians. So you've heard the expression, the squeaky wheel. Is that how they say it? The squeaky wheel. What is it? Gets the grease. Um, Well,. It tells you a little bit about this church, but it's really more than just the church. It's the location of the church. You see, some people have in their minds that Christianity began as this rural agrarian movement among backwards people. But nothing could be further from the truth. Christianity emerged in the ancient world in an urban context. The churches that were established in the ancient world were established in thriving urban communities in the midst of very challenging spiritual and theological contexts. Corinth is a great example. Corinth was a thriving community and city in the ancient world. It was known as a cosmopolitan city. It was famous for its commerce. It was a very wealthy city. It was known for its also its political acumen, it's religious expression. At least 12 temples uh, were located in Corinth. It was also known as a sports community. It was home to the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympics in the ancient world. So when we studied Second Corinthians back in the spring, we produced this little booklet, Reconcile. And Kurt wrote an introduction to Paul's encounter in Corinth. And when Kurt just shared kind of some material to help us understand the challenge that Paul faced. Let let me read to you an excerpt from what Kurt said back then. God sent a humble suffering Pharisee with a story about a crucified Messiah into a proud, pleasure-seeking, hero-worshiping, sports-loving, status-oriented pagan community. It is not a question of what could possibly go wrong. It's more of a matter of how could it possibly go right. I believe that Kurt hit the nail on the head, if you will. How in the world could this Jew, converted Christian, make his way into this incredibly cosmopolitan urban community known as Corinth and preach and teach a message about a crucified Messiah and get any standing, if you will. How was that going to be possible? Well, we're following up this study now with a study of 1 Corinthians. And we've now produced this booklet. And I hope you've gotten your copy of it. If you haven't, you need to get one today because it is full of insight and resources. Because here's what we're going to do over the next two months. We're going to spend September and October in a season of theological reflection and we're going to ask something of you. We're going to ask you to really spend some time learning more about how to truly study the Bible, exegete biblical texts, spend some time in biblical interpretation, theological reflection, and make life application to your own life based upon that endeavor. And 1 Corinthians offers us a great opportunity to do that. Now, why did I choose 1 Corinthians for the fall to spend two months in this book? Well, there's actually a bigger picture at play. And what what I really want us to think about is this whole idea of rededication. So let me just share with you an excerpt from the article that I wrote in this booklet. From a seasonal perspective, fall is an opportune time to encourage people to re-engage reestablish rhythms, reconnect, and rededicate. From a theological perspective, 1 Corinthians offers an opportunity to frame some important conversations in the context of a first century church facing the challenges imposed by its setting in the pluralistic reality of Corinth. So that's what's really happening. It's a season of re-engagement, reinvestment rededication. And if you think about it, the fall of the year offers us that. It's always been that way for me. I love the fall season. Um, I'm a college football fan. Y'all know that, right? And uh, I have three teams, Auburn, Baylor, and whoever plays Alabama. So (laughs) yesterday, I was a Utah State. I don't even know what Utah State is, but I was pulling for them. Poor poor kids that showed up in Tuscaloosa. But nevertheless, and then yesterday, monumental event at our home. Our little grandson, Gideon, attended his very first Auburn football game in my house, and it was awesome. Yes, perfect. I've got plenty of pictures, a couple of videos. He came dressed for the occasion. He's smart. What can I say? And the Bible says to train a child up. You know all that. Um, but the fall, to me, is just a... It's always been that for me, just a time to reconsider, reconnect, restore rhythms. I, I, I can remember when we were young with kids, it was that time to just re-engage with school, get back in that school pickup line, you know? Isn't it funny, you become grandparents and all of a sudden the circle continues, you get right back in that same pickup line. Um, it's fascinating when it happens to you, but, I wonder about you, though. What is God saying to you this fall? Is this a time where you need to rededicate yourself in some area of your life? Some spiritual part of your life? I wonder what it might be. What is it that God might be calling on you to do, to recommit yourself to? You know, maybe it's a... um, a recommitment in investing yourself in ministry. Maybe the Lord has opened some opportunities for you and it's time to reconnect and re-engage. Maybe it has to do with giving financially to the kingdom of God through your church. It's a time to recommit yourself, to be faithful in giving. Maybe it's attendance. You know, I will tell you this, I'm grateful to the Lord for the fact that we can provide our worship services online for so many people. We have many people in our church who, for a number of reasons, are just unable to be with us anymore. And aren't we grateful that we have this medium, that we can have our church family together even if we're in different places? And we're so grateful for that, and I'm glad we can provide that for many of you who are joining us today online. But you know, there are some who this is not necessarily a necessity, it's become more a matter of convenience. And so I just wonder, is this maybe a season for you to recommit yourself to be physically present with the people of God? I'm not sure what it may be for you. I just know for me, this season is just always that. I just I just rethink things. I find myself recommitting myself to it. And so I want to invite you to that season. So during these next couple of months, let's do that together as a church. Let's do it graciously and humbly as we try to encourage each other. And I want us to explore 1 Corinthians. It's a a fascinating book. It offers us so much opportunity for dialogue. So here's how we're going to do it. On Sunday mornings, I'm gonna preach a sermon from a selected passage out of 1 Corinthians. On Wednesdays in the Pastors Bible Study, we launch this coming Wednesday at noon. We'll have a meal together in the Fellowship Hall, and then I'll get started around 1230 or so to teach the Bible. We're going to study 1 Corinthians. And you can find us online or you, some of you live in other places or you can be here for that. Some of you are working. You can't come at noon. I get that. But you can join it online later. And then we also have a new podcast, Katie Hodges and I do, called Tell Me More. And it really arose out of Katie telling me that she heard me say many times that I can never... I never have enough time on Sunday morning to say everything I want to say. So this is, well, then tell me more. So usually on Monday afterwards, she would just sit down with me and say, well, let's unpack a little bit more of what you talked about on Sunday. So it's an extension of the sermon. But here's what's going to happen this morning. I want you to know what we're going to do. We're going to begin a two-month-long conversation. These sermons are all going to be connected. They're not standalone sermons there's a thread that's going to run through them. And it's going to be a season of of biblical analysis and theological reflection, and I want to invite you to it. I've already shared with you that next Sunday morning is going to be a very pointed message about sexual purity. And so parents, we are going to provide for your children tomorrow morning, I mean Sunday morning on the 11th during this hour. Preschoolers, and, and school-aged children, we're going to have another place for them to go if you don't think your children are ready for this conversation. I would say, unless they're probably in junior high, they're not ready for what I intend to say next Sunday. So just to give you that little heads up, but we have a place for your children, preschoolers through school age, next Sunday morning during the worship service. Does that make sense? So that'll be your option. We'll remind you of it next Sunday morning, okay? But actually what's happening today is we're starting a conversation. And it is going to be biblically based. It's going to be Christ-centered. But it is going to challenge us to think critically about this whole understanding of what Christianity is all about. So, let's start this morning. Today, we begin on the very first page of 1 Corinthians. I've entitled this sermon, Our Message Matters. The text is... 1 Corinthians 1, we begin in verse 18. Paul is, is sharing a word of greeting with the church at Corinth. He gets right to the gist of his concern. He's concerned about the unity of the church. He addresses that. And then he offers us this very powerful text. So look at it with me, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the message of the cross, the word message is the Greek word logos, the word of the cross. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So let's begin here this morning. Our society is riddled with many messages that claim to be the truth. And it's amazing how we are bombarded on a daily basis, with thousands of messages from all sorts and forms of media. I don't, I don't mean the news media per se. I just mean that we live in a loud culture. This is a loud society. Everybody is an expert in this culture. And we hear messages all day long about how to live, about what really matters, and the messages are conflicting and contradictory so they can't all be true. Everything can't be true. And so we're forced to somehow think, discern, try to determine what is actually true. And it can be challenging. There's a YouTube channel. Uh, It's entitled The Pursuit of Wonder. It's had 132 million people view videos on this YouTube channel. It's incredibly popular, over 2 million subscribers. One of the videos on the pursuit of wonder is on existentialism. Let me read you a transcript from that video. Now more than ever, we are exposed to a plethora of ideas about life the internet has made it so we can consume a seemingly unending amount of content on the topic of living most effectively however simultaneously this access to information has also allowed the consumer to realize just how conflicting most ideas are in the west the popularity of traditional religion has reduced as a result and for many the increasing access to information has revealed that the world is basically without any discernible truth. Did y'all hear that? That's how our world is right now. Let me read to you again. The increasing access to information has revealed that the world is basically without any discernible truth. And most ideas about how to live are inconclusive and unreliable. It's fair to speculate that this could be a major contributing factor to the modern world's increasing levels of anxiety, cynicism and disillusion. Choosing between conflicting ideas of how to live has always been an issue for the individual. But in the modern world, where conflicting ideas are constantly smacking us in the face, we can often find ourselves failing in our attempt to find footing in this reality. At birth, it's as if we're all given a slab of clay We get to choose what to mold it into. However, there's no right or wrong way to mold the clay. Rather, there are endless ways, all equally absurd and all equally meaningless. We just studied the book of Ecclesiastes for a reason because it speaks directly to this society. This society is trying to figure out how to cipher, filter, discern all these messages. Here's where it hits us as Christians. Our temptation as contemporary Western Christians is to succumb to a message of reductionism and accommodation. Those are two real temptations for Western Christianity. And we have many examples of both of them. Reductionism is actually a term that comes out of the academic field of philosophy, but yet it can be applied to other academic disciplines and realities. If you're familiar with reductionism, it can be applied to all kinds of things. According to reductionism, seemingly more complex events and things can be entirely explained and understood in terms of seemingly less complex events and things. It sounds innocent enough philosophically. But let me just read to you one author's take on how it works. The application of reductionism, most meaningful to religion or spirituality, explains a thing in terms of its components with the implication that the thing described carries no more meaning than all of the individual components themselves. So here's how it works, y'all. A belief in reductionism is usually expressed using variations of the phrase, nothing but... For example, a reductionist might describe a river as nothing but a large collection of moving water molecules. A book could be reductively explained as nothing but a series of ink marks on paper. Now, would both of those statements be true? That a river is actually nothing but a large collection of moving water molecules. Well, a river is a collection of Moving water molecules, true. But is that all it is when you experience it? A book, it is nothing but a series of ink marks on paper. That is true, but is that really true? And here's how it works with us. A reductionist might reject the validity of spiritual experience by saying your religious beliefs are nothing but the sum of human evolution, cultural mythology, and your own psychological makeup. In other words, reductionism denies the very reality of the thing it describes so it takes religion spirituality the message if you will and reduces it down to all right can you hear me now I'm sorry so it's a challenge and you and I live in the face of these conflicting messages and as Christians we are tempted Western Christians, to just reduce the Christian message and it becomes nothing but. It's challenging. Last week, an influential pastor retired and last Sunday was his very last sermon. He and I have spent our entire adult ministry lives alongside one another. He was just ahead of me in seminary And even though he and I aren't necessarily that close, um, our ministries have coincided all these years. And last Sunday, he retired. His name is Rick Warren. He was the pastor of Saddleback Community Church in California. He planted that church in 1980. Here's what Rick said about this challenge that we face. He says, our culture has accepted two huge lies The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Well, I completely agree with Rick. We live in a day where it's tempting to just reduce everything. But you know what? The bigger temptation for Western Christians is accommodation. What is accommodation? That is to adopt what is culturally relevant and acceptable regardless of the scripture that it may violate. Let me tell you why it's so tempting. It's tempting because in today's culture, we want to be liked. We want to fit in. We don't want to be viewed as an obscurantist, as some kind of religious zealot. We don't want to be viewed as being backwards, closed-minded. We don't want to be attacked on social media. You see, I know what it's like to be attacked on social media. I live with it. There are people right now on Twitter and other platforms who criticize me because of my beliefs, some of the stands that I take, and the role that I play at Baylor University as a regent. I get criticized. I've read a good bit of it, and I'm called all kinds of names because of what I stand for, what I believe, and because of the influence that I presumably have. So I know what it's like. It's not pleasant. It's not something that any of us necessarily want. And so what's our temptation? Well, our temptation is just to accommodate and just embrace whatever's culturally relevant, whatever's culturally acceptable. Because you see, we don't want to be known as a blank phobic. Just pick something. Well, if you believe that, you're a blank phobic. See, those... It's a hard term. It's used across our culture today. For anybody that disagrees with whatever may be prevalent in the culture. So the temptation is to accommodate it. And I get it. And what does that do? It weakens the message. Compromises the message. And I know how challenging it can be. See, here's the challenge we also have. It has to do with nomenclature. Everybody wants to assign you a name. They wanna put you in a category And here's the problem I have. I'm not conservative enough to be a fundamentalist. And I'm not liberal enough to be a liberal. So my fundamentalist friends want me to be just a little more conservative. And I'm not. And it irritates them. And my liberal friends want me to be way yonder more liberal. And I'm not. And it irritates them. So I find myself, my whole adult ministry life, in this third space. I'm not a fundamentalist. And I'm not a liberal. So you know what they call me? A moderate. And they say, well, you know, you pastor a moderate church. And you're a moderate theologian. And the only thing that I don't like about that is I don't like that word. I'm not a moderate Auburn fan. I'm not. I'm straight up, full out, give it all you got. I'm not a moderate golfer. I'm not any good, but I love to play it, and I'll play it with you on any day that ends in Y, except Easter. Especially if it's a really nice place. (laughs) I'm not moderate. That's not the right word for me. I'm not moderate. I'm convicted. It's just they haven't yet come up with a term for me. Now, some of y'all have a term for me, but I don't want to hear about it. And I know the challenges there. Roger Olson is one of my favorite theologians, retired from Truett Seminary. He is somewhat of a progressive conservative, I would say. I love to read Roger, he challenges me. He's just written a brand new book called Against Liberal Theology. And Roger is no one's fundamentalist, if you know him. But here's what he says about liberalism in his chapter on liberalism in the Bible, he says, at the end of this tour of liberal Christianity's account of the Bible, our honest conclusion must be that it has cut the cord of continuity between itself and classical Orthodox Christianity so fully, and finally, that what is left is unrecognizable as authentically Christian. Orthodox Christians may never fully agree on the details of the Bible, the relationship between the Bible and tradition, or the interpretation of obscure passages of the Bible but we have always agreed that the Bible is God's word written supernaturally inspired and authoritative over fads and cultural trends. I couldn't have said it better myself. In spite of the challenges we face, we've got to somehow humbly stand against the temptations of accommodation and reductionism. Why does it matter? What difference does it make well, here's how it seems to me, and I could be wrong, but I want to tell you how it feels to me right now. It feels to me like the foundational understanding of reality is at stake. That's how it feels to me. It, it feels to me like there's nowhere to stand anymore. Carl Truman has written this book entitled Strange New World. And I've read through it and I'm grateful for it. Here's what Truman says. This is also in the introduction to this booklet that I've written. Here's Truman's quote. For many people, the Western world in which we now live has a profoundly confusing and often disturbing quality to it. Things once regarded as obvious and unassailable virtues have in recent years been subject to vigorous criticism and even in some cases come to be seen by many as more akin to vices. Welcome to this strange new world. You may not like it but it is where you live and therefore it is important that you try to understand it. Well, I would tell you, I'm heeding the challenge of Carl Truman. I'm trying to understand this strange new world that I find myself in. And I'm trying to determine how best to minister to it. And I give it a lot of thought and I pray diligently about it. So here's what I would say to y'all this morning. In the face of moral relativism, subjective existentialism, and what I perceive to be an absolute rejection of authority, Christianity, orthodox Christianity, still has a message. And it matters. And so let me offer you what I believe that message is. The message of Christianity embodies a theology of creation, sin, and redemption. It's important that we consider all three of those. Because there are some Christians who take one of these seriously, but not all three. Other Christians take another one seriously, but not all three. I would contend they all rise and fall together. And if you want to truly receive the embodiment of the real Christian message from my place as a theologian, then you must give credence to all three. Creation. Sin and redemption, it all fits together. It is the consistent witness of historically orthodox Christianity. Paul went to Corinth. He then wrote Corinth a letter. Let me tell you about first century Corinth. It was an incredibly challenging place. It was a rich, diverse cultural and theological milieu. No less than 12 temples. You could have taken all the atheists in first century Corinth and put them in a Volkswagen. There were no atheists. These were religious people, theologically astute people who had all kinds of worldviews. It was a hodgepodge of spiritual ideas, each of them representing a spiritual worldview, differing explanations of reality, completely enamored with Greek wisdom And philosophy. Do you hear Paul saying, where's the wise man? Where's your philosopher? Tell me about your wisdom. He knew this culture. He knew these people were infatuated with human achievement, totally reliant on human ingenuity. Paul understood that. And so what did Paul do when he got to Corinth? What what was Paul's message to the Corinthians? Well, if you still have your Bibles open, look with me at 1 Corinthians 2. We didn't read this text, but, but look at it with me. Because Here's what Paul says. When when I arrived in Corinth in this incredibly rich, culturally diverse, theologically um, um, powerful town, if you will. Here's what he says. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. Chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom alone, but on God's power. What does he say in our text? Look at verse 23. We preach Christ crucified, he said. Now, let me tell you why that's so important. We have a theology of creation as Christians. What that means is we believe that all of creation is infused with purposeful meaning. It is an expression of the will of God who has created it all. Human beings are the crowning achievement of God's handiwork. Every human being bears the image of God, they are to be treated with dignity, with respect highest value held in high esteem we are to listen to learn from care for and love our fellow human beings they may be different than us that they, they may represent different views but each human being on planet earth has inherent value and worth simply by being alive and so we have a robust theology of creation Unfortunately, there are many Western Christians who end with that. And that is the summation of their theology. And it reduces Jesus. And Jesus becomes a moralistic teacher, a guy to just show you how to live, a man filled with beautiful stories and proverbs and someone there to bless you and affirm you in whatever you choose to do. If your theology ends with a theology of creation, you end up a reductionist and you reduce Jesus and you water down the message. So we can't stop there as Christians. The Christian message also embodies a very robust theology of sin because human beings have been infected with a very dangerous and pervasive virus, much more damaging than COVID-19, sin. And sin has damaged our ability to truly discern what is right, what is wholesome, what is healthy and best. Sin has permeated our feelings. Sin has permeated our minds. Sin, Sin has permeated our nature, our personhood, and sin has placed every human being in peril. Because of sin, we can't trust our natural inclinations. We can't trust our proclivities, our feelings, our desires, our wants, because they're warped because of sin. They're damaged. They're broken. And our sin has separated us from our creator and his purpose and his original design for our lives. Sin is powerful. But praise God, the Christian message also embodies a theology of redemption. God has chosen to address our plight in a very personal and purposeful manner. Rather than leave us to ourselves, leave us to our brokenness, our sinfulness, he has intervened, and it's in the incarnation where we see this most fully expressed. Because what did God do? God sent his son to offer us Hope. He sent his son to bring redemption to humanity, to redeem us from our lostness, our separation, our eternal destiny without him, to rescue us from our own sinful desires and impulses, and to stand in our place and receive our punishment on a cross and purchase our freedom and rescue us and redeem us. That's what God has done. He has answered the sin. So what does Paul say? Paul says, when I came to Corinth, he doesn't say this, I preached Christ, the moralist. He doesn't say, I preached Christ, the good teacher. He doesn't say, I preached Christ, a guide for your life. He doesn't say, I preached Christ, who will affirm you in your greatest desires. He said, when I came to Corinth, I preached a crucified Christ. He said, it's the message of the cross because you see, it's there at the cross that all of this theology finds its fullest expression. God has created everything that is and his love is on display at the cross. He loves humanity so much that he would not leave us to our own devices because he created us in the first place and he desires to experience eternity with us and we also see sin dealt with on the cross something had to be done to, to, to address man's sinful problem and it's on the cross we find that but also it is the message of redemption and hope where sin has been defeated once and for all it was on the cross right the cross that's what Paul says Dr. David Garland, one of my mentors theologically, longtime dean at Church Seminary, here's what he says about the cross. He says, the gospel transforms the cross as a symbol of Roman terror and political domination into a symbol of God's love and power. It shows that the power of God's love is greater than human love of power. You see, to the Romans, the cross was a symbol of power. The cross was an expression of their domination. The cross is where they could take you and sacrifice you. The cross is where you could be crucified. The cross was a powerful instrument. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion. The Romans didn't invent it, but they perfected it. 40,000 people were crucified by the Romans. And it was an expression of their power. Dr. Garland says, God took the very expression and instrument of power and turned it into a symbol of love. It's the cross. That's where we find our hope. You know what? It was controversial when Paul did this. It was controversial in Corinth because it flies in the face of human achievement, self-reliance, reductionism, accommodation. Look at what Paul says. Look at verse 18. He says, the word of the cross, the message of the cross, the proclamation of the cross. He said, you know what it is to many people? Foolishness. People who are still in their sin is foolishness. As a matter of fact, Look what he says in verse 23. He says, we preach Christ crucified. You know what it is to the Jews, he says? You know what the Greek word is? Skandalon. We get our word scandal. He says, to the Jews, scandal. Messiah can't be crucified. And he says to the Greeks, Moriah. We get our word moron. He says, it's moronic. It's foolishness. He says, but to us... Look at verse 24, to those whom God has called, power, wisdom. It's the power of God, it's the wisdom of God. See, this message is about the power of God and the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. Paul even says in verse 21, God used something, the foolishness of what was preached. What he means by that is he says, Look, I didn't come to you as, as someone who was trained in rhetoric. I came preaching. You didn't even know what that was. You, you'd never heard it before. It's very different than anything you were trained in. But I want you to know this when you accepted this message, is the power of God in your life. So the cross is the power of God. So here's what we don't want to do, y'all. We don't want to cheapen it. We don't. We, we don't want to reduce it we don't want to accommodate and somehow make Jesus palatable and popular as if that's our job this message it means something so let's not cheapen it Dietrich Bonhoeffer you remember what he said let me read it to you he says cheap grace It means the justification of the sin without the justification of the sinner. Forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. The world goes on in the same old way. Grace without the cross and grace without Jesus Christ. I would submit to you this morning, our message matters because I believe a lot is at stake. In fact, as I said, it feels to me like the fundamental understanding of reality is at stake right now. And our message matters. So here's what I would say in conclusion today. To be continued. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we, we bow before you today humbly, admitting our need and our limitations. We, we know, Lord, that as your word says right now, we see through a glass dimly. <laughs> we, don't, we don't understand everything, and, and we're in a challenging season. And we want to live into this moment fully and be good stewards, just as Paul was in the first century. And we want to do it graciously in a Christ-like way. In every way, we want to follow the Jesus way. But, Lord, we believe this message actually matters. And so I pray for our church today, Lord, that we will give time and energy and thought and reflection and true study into our message and that we will evaluate our message biblically and theologically and we will seek the truth because we know the truth is what truly sets people free. So, Lord, give us wisdom to do just that. And guide us, Lord, in our journey so that we might truly honor you with our lives and with our lips. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.